This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts Podcast with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. This year, my guests Andrew Rannells and Ben Platt are both nominated for Tony Awards for their performances in a musical. Andrew and Ben gave stunning portraits of three-dimensional people struggling to find their way to their own personal truths and must deal with the painful obstacles thrown in their paths. In Falsettos and Dear Evan Hansen, they give heartbreaking and unforgettable performances that audiences will be touched by long after they leave the theater. First up, my interview with Tony nominee, Andrew Rannells. A-OK. A-OK. Hi, everyone. My guest today is the Tony, Emmy, and Golden Globe-nominated and Grammy Award-winning actor, Andrew Rannells. Andrew has an incredible Broadway resume, which includes roles in Falsettos, Hamilton, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, The Book of Mormon, Jersey Boys, and Hairspray. TV audiences know him from Girls, The New Normal, Glee, The Nick, The Simpsons, Another Period, and more. He charmed us with his winning performance in the film The Intern with Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro, and there is no doubt there will be many more amazing film roles in his future. Welcome, Andrew Reynolds. That's a very nice welcome. That's very nice. That's my favorite part. I mean, it's nice to check in on your own bio. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, oh, I did stuff. See? You, did, you did much it's more like stuff. like reading your own obituary, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. There's some things that I, I did. I did some stuff, and then I died. <laughs> Basically. Basically, that's what happened. So the thing that I want to ask you, because this is true for me, and I'm curious if this is true for you, mm-hmm. how long did it take before you could hear a doorbell and not feel like you had to burst into song. <laughs> a while. A while. I mean, it still happened. Because the commercial, like, they've just updated the TV commercial for the Book of Mormon, so it's not me jumping on a trampoline anymore. But I still, like, when I hear uh, New York One, they'll start it, and I, I there's it's a Pavlovian. something. Totally. Yeah. Our doorbell in our apartment building, nothing chimey about it. It's yep. ding-dong. And every day... Whether it's my 10-year-old, my 12-year-old, or my husband, or me, or even the dog at this point, we have to burst into Book of Mormon song. And the other thing you should know is our Book of Mormon summer was two summers ago. I want you to picture the Famosa family 
much like the Von Trapps. Okay. Except we're in Paris and we're on like these city bikes all around oh Paris. Oh my God. And we are singing Book of Mormon at the top of our lungs around the Louvre. There's like that yeah, triangular that, glass mm-hmm. thing. And that's us, like running people over and sort of like, hello. I'm, and like it was the best summer <laughs> ever. So we're done. So thank you oh, for well, coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. This was so easy. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you about that. <laughs> I've had many musicals in my life that I'm obsessive about. Okay. What's the first musical that you obsessed about? I would say the first musical that I truly obsessed about as a conscious musical theater lover, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, I grew up in New Jersey, that's near New York City, so we would come see shows for family celebrations, was Into the Woods. That was- Mine too. So that was your entree. Yep. And knowing like there's nothing, this is amazing. That PBS, they filmed it for PBS. Well, you grew up in Omaha. Yeah, so I was nowhere near a Broadway stage. That PBS recording was like the greatest thing in the world. And I really did, like, I got that album. I remember I, I got the cassette tape and then sent away for the libretto. Because you, on the back, Yes, it said you it. could. So I <laughs> wrote and got did. it yes. because I wasn't even sure what a libretto was. What is but a libretto? I still don't really know. It's just, like, all nice of the scarf. lyrics printed. I mean, it comes right. with the CD, but it didn't come with the cassette because it was right. too big. So right. I sent away for it, and I got the libretto. And then you could lie in your bed and, like, yeah, listen and read Yeah, obsess about pi- the pictures and, oh, All right, yeah. well, let's go back even. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's ding, 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 ding. Omaha, Nebraska. Yep. A place I've never been. Well. I know it for steaks. Yes, steaks. Are your family like many generations of Nebraskans? Nebraskans. Mm -hmm. Nebraskans. Oh, yeah, they're all there. Both my mom and my dad's family were, some of my dad's family was from Iowa, but mostly they all lived in in Omaha. So we're firmly planted in the Midwest. Not Mormon. Not Mormon Catholic. Is that the same thing? I mean... There's a great story it's at the center of both religions. <laughs> yes. Great story. Catholics have a little more history, I mm-hmm. guess, right? So Longer. Like the, so the Mormons had a hard time because it was new and right. their iconography was not as old and like all of that. But Catholics, like, that's an old one. But we were sort of cafeteria Catholics. You sort of pick and choose, like, what we were going to believe and what we weren't. So my parents were pretty liberal. Which is great. Which is great. Were there, like, touring companies that would come yeah, through? Yeah, a lot. I, I understand now that some of them were what we called bus and truck mm-hmm. and non-equity tours, yes. which I didn't know. That, I mean, what did I know? What right. did I care if, if someone was in a union or not? If they could sing. Um, yeah, so they were singing and dancing. But I saw – I started seeing all of the – I think the first tour I saw – was probably Avita, starring Donna Marie Asbury. Amazing. Who's in Chicago and has been in Chicago for like yeah. 17 years. Have you been literally. able to tell her? Absolutely. I like struck up a friendship with her when I was at the Book of Mormon and we were working across the street from each other. And she's right. so lovely and so nice. And But I was like, I remember like her name was like burned into my head, Donna hey. Marie Asbury. So a lot of my friends or guests on this show who didn't grow up in an urban area or certainly in New York City found out they could sing mm-hmm. in church. Yeah. You have one of the most incredible voices I've ever That's heard. That's very sweet. And for a male voice, your range is pretty incredible. I guess I wonder, when does a male voice mature into the voice I'm hearing now when you sing? When did that happen? And when did you know? This is a four-part question. And when did you know, holy shit. That I could sing? Not um, just sing, Andy. It took a while. I always had a high voice. I could always sing high, but it was really untrained and kind of unpredictable. 
And even after Hairspray was my first Broadway show, I didn't really consider myself like to be a super strong singer. It was good for that show because it was sort of, you know, Mark and Scott's sort of like right. 60s pop sound. So I could do that. And I realized that I was like, this I can do. But it wasn't until I did Jersey Boys a few years later where I felt like my voice kind of was like 29, I guess. And my voice kind of like clicked a little bit. Something something shifted in the way that I was singing. Were you working with a teacher? No. So you just loved to sing? And I just sing loved to sing. The time? Yeah, I had a vocal coach who was not like a technician, but like, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, like on that tour, like the placement thing that I learned was... Jersey Boys tour? With Jersey Boys was mimicking... How Christine Ebersol sings, okay. <laughs> which is very specific, but she has a really like forward placed voice. And I found and like listening to her sing that like when you imitated when her, I was imitating Christine Ebersol, I yes. realized that I could like sing a little higher and I had a little more control over. I know that's the strangest that's thing in the world, wild. but I was like, were there certain songs of hers or albums? She has an album that she uh, of her like cabaret show that she did at the Carlisle. That I had, and it was, it's fantastic. It's a really great, I think it's called Live from the Cinegrill, uh-huh. I think, which is really great. And then that Grey Gardens cast album is also really incredible. But yeah, there's something about her technique and her placement that just like, I don't know, but resonated with me. But when you were younger, before that album even existed, yeah. you were singing. You yeah, were... but not well, and just kind of yelling. <laughs> Right. So <laughs> I was like a yelling well, singer. Welcome to certain Broadway Hello. shows, people. Well, it's my true. entire career. So how did holding me into the woods cassette <clears throat> lead to your journey as a professional person doing it too? Just as well. And now working with James Lapine, just by the way. I the know. full circle of it all. It's so crazy to me. Mm-hmm. So crazy. I took an interest in, you know, in Community theater. There's a community theater in our town. So I did that as a kid. And then that sort of just became like my thing that right. I did these local shows in high school and dinner theaters. As a teen? As a teen. Okay. As a tween and a teen. And then when it came time to start thinking about college, I was like, I gotta, I really wanna go to New York and I wanna try this. So I knew nothing. I was at an all boys Catholic high school. This was like, pre-internet, so it's not like you could just, like, Google, like, what's a good school for me to go to? And no one in your family was in the entertainment business. No, so I had, like, a priest who was, like, the guidance counselor being like, well, I don't know, Andy. I'm not – I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I'm not sure where to tell you where to go in New York. I was like, well, I think NYU is a school, and it was, and a very expensive one. So that led me to Marymount. That's supposed to have a great theater program. Upper West, Upper East Side, yeah. Yep. It is It is a great, and it got me to New York, and I was there for two years. Did you years. have to audition? I did. Do you remember what you did? Oh, hell yeah. I sang Extraordinary from Pippin. Can you do like the first line? Do you remember it? <laughs> no. <laughs> how does that, wait, how does that song I can't. start? Okay, just say I it. I can't do it. Do you remember how it started? Patch on the Roof. Oh, yeah, okay. Pitch in the okay. Hay. I know which one now. All right. Um, yes. He only sings for money. I only people. sing for money. And, and after yes. 12, p- 12 p.m. Yeah, so I sang Extraordinary. And then I did a monologue from Shadowbox. It's about Who like, helped you make those choices, like your community theater uh-huh. director? Yeah. Well, those were the right choices. Those were good they? choices. You got in. I did. I got in. It was a good program. It was, But it was. I was very distracted in New York. I mean, coming from Nebraska, moving to New York, there's no campus mm-hmm. at Marymount. So it was like I, the school was on the Upper East Side. I lived in Brooklyn Heights. I was just basically like running all over the city. Did you know anybody? 
I had one friend that I had met at a college scholarship audition who's still my best friend, Zuzana Shutkovsky. And she, she's your Hannah. She's my Hannah. And we moved here the same year. She went to Barnard because she's fancy and smart. Yeah. So I ended up spending a lot of time with her up by Barnard in Columbia. And it was also the year after Rent opened. Mm-hmm. And if you'll recall, there did were all Did you those... see Rent as soon as you got to New York? I did. I saw it actually right before I moved here. But the thing about Rent when I moved here was there's all these signs up that said, can you sing? Audition for Rent. Because they were just like des- – everybody was getting nodes and like they were trying to like desperately recast people. Yes, and, like, I feel tours like they were on tu- like, like telephone booths and stuff. Yes. Like, do you need John's moving? Yes. And then it was like <laughs> – Do you sing yes. Audition for Rent? Yes. So I was like, I want to audition for Rent. I do sing. So I started dropping out of school and like going to open calls. How far did you get in that process? Pretty far the first time, mm-hmm. the first go around, which was a real mindfuck as like a my first Broadway audition to get – so close to rent yeah it's like hamilton yeah like and then i didn't time. get it but i was like oh I, i'm definitely in the right place like i'm just 19 was I that almost... your first broadway audition yeah yeah it was pretty crazy yeah but later that year mm-hmm. i was an intern at hwa uh-huh uh-huh i feel like i know where this is going yes and i used to fax your headshot Wait, you were an intern? Yes. I was their their little bitch intern that had to do, like, mostly it was calling people and asking for more headshots or putting together submission packets, which I was very educational. I spoke. I don't remember ever having to call I was you. very good about replenishing my headshots. Your headshots. But I do remember, like, because then I saw you in Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, yes. and, like, I was a, it was like, like a big. That's my headshot. Yeah. I know that girl. It's funny. There's a, a handful of people, like, I'm friendly with now that I'm like, oh, I used to fax their headshots. How about all the people who are interns? somewhere who are now like feeling like this exuberant feeling of faith that I can go from like doing that and then being Andrew. Well, that's... You are an inspiration. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just a testament to like... You were a good Life is long and you've got to like be creative and I would get so discouraged because so many of my friends had a very sort of traditional path. They went to a good college and they right. got the the showcase and then they got the agent and then they started auditioning and so many of my friends at that time were in Broadway shows. I was like, well, this is just never going to happen for me because I felt sort of... Was it torturous kind of faxing yeah. headshots of people doing what you wanted to be doing? Yeah, I stopped acting for a little while. I got a job. I had always done a lot of voiceover work and I was working for this animation company called Four Kids, the number four kids. And Clever. they did like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! And, sure. and for two years I directed cartoons, like voiceover cartoons. At a, like way too young to be doing it. But That's they gave me this amazing. job. So I just tried to block all of that Broadway stuff out because it was it wasn't happening for me. So I'm just gonna do these voiceovers. So how did you get an agent? When I decided, I was like, okay, I'm going to take another stab at this musical theater thing, I reached out to Craig Burns. I said, you know, I want to start auditioning again after two years of not auditioning. So he started bringing me in for stuff. And one of the things he brought me in for was a big open call for hairspray. So I went in and booked it, which was crazy. Yeah. So that was your first big thing. That was my first big thing. I played Fender. On Broadway. On Broadway. So your first job, this is how it starts. My first show is on Broadway. I mean, I'd done some regional Uh work. I don't want to minimize my time at the Westchester Broadway Dinner Theater. And I don't want you to either. No, I don't. Hashtag Westchester Broadway Theater. We're going to (sighs) blow, we are blowing up right now on Twitter. (laughs) 
It's it's trending. Westchester Broadway Dinner Theater. It's definitely trending. Um, but you're all alone. See, I came. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. I just came over the George Washington Bridge. And you're like, here I am. Here. here I am. I already knew where it was. I yep. had family just on the other side of the bridge. I went to college in the city. I always think about for people who came here, like you met one person. Yeah. Yeah. Like so suddenly you're growing your own family. Yeah. Are you homesick? Are you like – Definitely. What? Yeah. Definitely. But I knew I had to sort of stick it out, mm-hmm. which was hard, which was like, you know, not going home for some holidays and not like – and really just making a decision like I just got to do this. I just got to stick it out and see what happens. I was 20 – Six when I got hairspray, so I moved here at nineteen. That was such a fun show, though. It was a fun show. I love that show. I, have, I, I, I do a mean pony now because of that do show. You? That could be on your special resume skill. still under special skills. Ponying. Thanks, Jerry Mitchell. I may have seen you in hairspray because I did not see it early on. It took me a while to go see it. Uh, So I probably saw you. And then Jersey Boys was huge. And so it's funny to me that you didn't think of yourself as a singer because that show is really just about a couple of guys who sing. That was a really – I was going to say life-changing. But it was life-changing for me because it it built a lot of confidence. I left that almost two-year period doing that show, playing that part, with a a much better sense of self and being like an adult in this business. And I didn't feel like I needed to be a kid or – like just grateful to be here, I felt like, okay, you've earned some space. So it really sort of set me up sort of timing-wise perfectly for the Book of Mormon because when all of those auditions started happening, and as you know, like sometimes those auditions can take forever, like it takes months, I just felt like I was in a good spot to be like, well, this is the thing that I do, and I don't know if it's for you, but I'm going to do my thing and hopefully it's what you like. You were so unbelievably funny and moving, and your voice was just so perfectly suited for the material in Mormon. Was that apparent to you and to them the first time you came in? Did you feel that way? Like there was this incredible synthesis between what you have to offer and what was on the page of that script? There was something about, and I think, you know, Trey Parker and I have talked about it, that when I came into the room and he's from Colorado and I'm from Nebraska and there was just some sort of like Midwestern shorthand that happened between us. Did you know each other at all? No. It was funny. I had done a show a couple months before called Lysistrata Jones. Oh, yeah. And, but we were like out of town. We were doing it in Dallas. And the choreographer and the director was this guy named Dan Connectus. And he was about to do the workshop of the Book of Mormon. And because I'm a, you know, an actor, um, always keeping my eye on like the next, next job. Next. So I'm here. I am working with him, and I asked him one day. I was like, Tell me "So about Book that. of Mormon?" I was like, yeah. "Well, he's like, oh, it's really great, and the script is really funny, and it's really crazy." And I said, "I'm just gonna ask. Like, is there? Do you think there's anything for me in that show?" And he thought about it, and he went, "No, not really." Really? And I was like, "Okay." And I just sort of took him at his word because, right. like, Knowing I didn't know the material, so I, I was like, "Okay, maybe not." And then they did the workshop, and then, you know, unfortunately, they decided to re- – or fortunately for me, they decided to recast a so couple roles. So you weren't roles. in the original workshop? No. There um, really was nothing for you in that. There wasn't because it was already cast. But then they had auditions to make some replacements, and it just – yeah. Sometimes the biggest jobs turn out to be the easiest to get in some strange way. I think I only went in three times, and then that was it. 
And it was like over the course of like. And so, what were you were weeks. you singing? I believe I sang a song that sort of became you and me, but mostly me. It wasn't called that at the time. Mm-hmm. It was called something incredible. I sang that, and I I feel like I had to sing the first part of I believe. Can you even wrap your brain around now with some distance from it, being the kid watching the Tonys, to being the kid nominated mm-hmm. for a Tony? crushing it with your performance. Every rehearsal we did, I was so, I just felt like I was just in a zone. And I was like, everything's great. I totally have this. And everybody was, I think, kind of amazed that I was just like floating through the, you know, we were still doing the show at night and like nothing phased me. Everything was fine. And then we got to that night and Nikki James won right before I performed. So I was like watching her and very emotional. And then I was standing behind this like giant wall of, electronics that was going to like fly up above my head and yeah. I was supposed to walk out from underneath it and I just like lost my mind for a second and I was like I can't believe I have to do this right now but you got in front of back. tens of people on television tens of people all over the world <laughs> tens of people are watching at home but um but it was such an amazing night and it, it, again go, going back to the fact that like the tonys and you know seeing those performances on PBS like that's the reason I wanted to do this yeah. it's very humbling to get to be a part of that that broadcast. Do you have a sense of why it has happened for you? Because there are a know. lot of ambitious people. Of course, And there yeah. are a lot of talented people. Yes. But it's happening. Then you stepped into the Hamilton, most famous show on the planet. I can't, like, can you even explain no, what it's like to strange. be inside of Hamilton? <laughs> that one was very odd because just one day I got this phone call for my agent and he was like crazy question crazy he was like so and I had put in a request for house seats had you seen it yet no because <laughs> I couldn't get tickets get. and I put get. in a request and yes. I thought he was gonna call and say like they finally we came got you in kid yeah and um and said he was like they offered you, randomly they offered you this would you come in for five weeks and fill in for Jonathan Groff I was like what do I get tickets yeah I was like I guess I can see it now yeah um and I got to see it like an obscene amount of times because I watched it every night when I was rehearsing. Can you just tell us a little bit? Because we all live voyeuristically right now. We wait yeah. every day, like, what's Lynn going to tell us what's on Twitter? Happening? Right, what's yeah. happening? We, there, I mean, and I shared a dressing do... room with him. It was so right. crazy. Yeah. So, um, did you know him before? Just from being around. Didn't really know Tommy Kale. So, it was a real shock that they asked me to do it. Jonathan and I joked that they were just like, who's another gay person on HBO? Oh, Andrew. Reynolds can do it. <laughs> and then we were. Well, how lucky that isn't you're that, another... that gay guy from HBO? Yes. I'm like, yes, it is. Yes. Still perfect. That's fantastic. You're still the gay. <laughs> it worked guy. out. Now you might be you the only it, one. You could say it about Jonathan or me, and it right. would still be true. You guys are interchangeable. I th- I've always thought that. Like, if you got sick, he could totally be Elijah. He could just step in for me. Every job you do is the most fun, with the best people and it's... the best writing. Pretty crazy. You just go from one to the other. It's really, when you say it like that. It's kind of like that. It's pretty amazing. Well, this, I feel like I would be sad if I didn't talk about falsettos for a moment. Sure. And just say, like, what a crazy experience this has been. Yeah. Because it really is like, that's the other show that I really obsessed about was from the 1992 Tonys when they did the baseball number. Uh. And I got the CDs from the library. Yeah. And really just like, was so blown away by this material. That so, kind of storytelling had really never happened before. No, no. And to and, see yourself in it. Yeah. 
as a gay kid, as a kid, first mm-hmm. of all, and then as like a gay person. And yeah. Did so, you know you were a gay kid? A gay child? Yeah. Um, yes. Uncertain. On un- Yes. Okay. I mean, I don't think I had the words for it, but I was in love with Maxwell Caulfield. Mm-hmm. So. Well, you, then you did have the words pretty for much. it. <laughs> I don't know what clearer words there might be. Wait, how old are you when you're like I mean, that one? young, like five. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just want to date Michael Carrington from Greece too. Mm-hmm. Have you? No. It hasn't happened. I met him once and I frightened him. I met him at an um, Easter bonnet. Competition. The competition for right. Broadway Cares. And I we had to share like a little holding room and I was trying to be cool. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to talk to him. I need to be cool. So I was like, hey, I, you know, I said – but I said something really aggressive like how informative he was to like my sexuality, which was like not – was not a good way to phrase that. But what he said to me was, I hear that a lot from people. <laughs> Well, he could have been a little... He was nice about yeah. it. But I was like, I'm sure he gets a lot of so like... So he's not gay. No. No, he's married to Juliet Mills. So Falsetto is such uh, a magical experience. And that cast, I mean... Did you meet the original cast? Have you spoken yes. to the original yeah, yeah, yeah. cast? Christian and I got to do an interview with Stephen McGardis and Michael Rupert um, before we opened. And then very generously, they all came to our opening night, the entire original company, which was really lovely. And I'm sure very strange for them and... I mean, the show is, it's so, it it's one of those shows that, like, really bonds a cast in a very specific way because mm-hmm. you do have to, like, really be in love with each other to tell that story every night. So it, it was sort of necessary for us to, like, all fall in love and become this family together. So that was their experience as well, and they still keep in touch with each other, and they still are very much in each other's lives. So it's a really, uh, it's a special uh, a special show, but it's such a, a beautiful story to get to tell. Yeah. So you've done a couple of parts, The New Normal and this, where your co-stars, I think Christian is straight, yeah. Yeah. and Justin Bartha is straight. Yeah. Do you think about it? Yeah. I mean, I think Christian is, is a great example of how it, it shouldn't and doesn't matter. Um, his whatever, you know, his sexuality offstage has not ever sort of drifted into our workplace environment. And I don't think mine has either. I think that we both – I mean, not that it, it doesn't inform your character. Of mm-hmm. course it does. But it just feels very natural and very easy and very – it's about the storytelling with him. But I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, another gay actor, and we were saying how rare it is that two gay actors are actually cast right. opposite each other. There's usually a heterosexual a guy, yeah. and a homosexual. And I don't know what the – if there's some sort of conscious choice on like director's parts or – I don't know what it is. But it's something that it's definitely – That would be really exciting though. To just have two. To, yeah. Yeah. It just, or just for that to be the new normal. Yeah. That there's no – I mean maybe some of it just has to do with marquee value. Totally. Um, and look, and I, I – this is a – it's a conversation that's always a little tricky because people ask me initially too when we – before we started rehearsals like, oh, well, Christian's not gay. So it's – you know, it's, it'd be nice to have a gay actor doing it. Mm-hmm. But Christian is remarkable. Yeah, <laughs> Christian is – magnificent in this part. So – beautiful and yeah. I can't imagine anyone else playing this part. Yeah. So he's clearly the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to be not cast in something that I was perfect for because I was gay. I'm not exactly Maybe not in the theater. Maybe being not. offered like action roles yet. I'm well, going to bring Elijah back Elijah does some running. <laughs> I do a lot of running in this coming season. Do you? Man, yeah. Lena and I are all over the city. Yeah. Which is always like that's the most fun. To like, if you actually get to film in New York, 
and you're on the streets of New York. It's like, I don't know. It's really something really magical about that. You're like, oh, I'm like we're doing it. We're well, doing and it that's the fun of watching the show, especially for New Yorkers. I mean, yeah. I think the show resonates no matter where you live. We're talking about Girls. Girls. The HBO series that uh, starting February twelfth is of uh, 2017. <laughs> yeah. So did that part come to you during Mormon? During Mormon. Yeah. Have you had to audition for anything in a long time? I auditioned for that. I auditioned for girls. They because the part was written f- totally a phys- very different physical type than me. Uh, Maxwell Caulfield. Caulfield. No, they wanted like they wanted like a heavy set bearded yogi is how it was described. And then I came in and was definitely not that. And I was yeah. doing Mormon at night, so I was like super squeaky clean. And Lena and I did the scene as written, and then we just improvised for a long, long time and um, really had such a good time together. And they're like, all right, let's do it. Do you improvise on that show, or is it pretty scripted? It is very scripted. Um, we have wonderful, wonderful writers, and that's always you know, beautifully written and told. Um, we do, depending on the scene and the needs of the scene, and particularly with my character because mm-hmm. often I don't have a lot of exposition. I don't have a lot of heavy lifting story-wise. Right, right. So I get to come in and just sort of mess around. I know on certain shows that that have a staff of writers, mm-hmm. it, it ends up happening that as the seasons progress, there's one writer who maybe is the most in your Who's character's your yeah. head. Has that happened on your show where one person is most responsible for the Elijah that we see? Yeah, I can always... Most of it is Lena. A lot of it is Bruce Eric Kaplan. Uh, and I can always tell, like, when on they... the page. I'm like, oh, and I would text Bruce and be like, is that you? And yeah. Like, yeah, it was me. But it's mostly Lena and, and Bruce, I would say. And it's funny because he's like a straight dad, like, in his, you know, late 40s or right. something. But he really... He gets there's just it. something about it Yeah. So do you have any um, from from early on or maybe yesterday, audition stories that you can share that maybe are funny now. One that always, like, still irks me, and I'm going to get, like, upset even telling it. I remember auditioning for Gossip Girl to be a a doorman, and I had two lines, which were name and I'm sorry. Like, that was... Right, she's not on the list or whatever. So... I start, and I was like, hey, I'm Andrew Rannells. I'm auditioning to be the doorman. And then I was like, name. And the casting assistant was like, I'm going to stop you. You're talking to Serena Vanderwooten, okay? Do you know who that is? It's Blake Lively. So think about that. It's like, okay. Name. Okay, again. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And I was like waiting with all these people. It was like one of those horrible audition rooms. It was like, and it was like all shapes and sizes. Right. Like there's all of clearly, you called for the same time. Yes. And I was like, what's happening? And the fact that he made me do that so many times, I was so angry. Why? That's so mean. Name. And of course I didn't get it. But I was like, oh. Oh, I wanted this story to end. You. And then I got to tell well, Blake Lively. Well, and then years later, after the Book of Mormon, this casting agency was like wanted to have like a general with me. And I was like, great, I'll have a general. So I went in and I was like, before we get started, I just want to tell you a story about how your assistants treat people. And they were so horrified. But I was like, I want to tell you this because yeah. they were like, Carl, can you come you should in here? Know. Well, and I'm sure that kid is like long gone and running a network Mike. now. <laughs> That's Bob Greenblatt. <laughs> that his name is Bob Greenblatt. <laughs> you know, um but single handedly probably name. Uh that is so mean. You know what I think? I think he liked you. I don't know. He liked you. I think you. he liked the power. 
And what about one from like the world of musical, musical theater? theater? The one that stands out most to me in my head is auditioning for um, the non-equity tour of Greece while I was doing Greece at the Westchester Broadway Dinner Theater. Callback. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I was like, oh, I have this in the bag. Like, I'm playing duty at Westchester. There's no reason they won't cast me on the non-equity tour, right? Done deal. Done and done. So I went in. Of course, the audition is like at 10 a.m. I was 21, didn't warm up. That song is very high. And as I started to sing, and it was like reaching as magic changes, and as you like, it sort of comes to a point where you're supposed to hit the big notes, I was like, oh, it's not going to happen. Like, I could just feel it. I was like, it's, I'm going to reach for it, and it's not going to be there. So instead, I just screamed mm. like a maniac. Like, I thought I was going to just, like, make a joke out of it. And I did, like, a weird, like, I don't know what I was going for. Like, sort of Bruce Springsteen-y, like, right. Ah! right. And looked at the table, and everyone, like, was just like, oh, my God. Like, they, uh, uh, yeah. He is not our brand. Nope. Not That's funny. Not our brand. Not our duty. And Hashtag then, not our duty. No. So then. So then I didn't get it. No. And then you're like, okay. <laughs> so then I had to get in the van and go to Westchester to and do feel two horrible. shows. I was like, I blew it. But you are able. You were able to hit that note in Book of Mormon. Pretty like, did you ever have one when you couldn't do it? Yeah, I. Did I you learn I, how to. Yeah, cheat so, it yeah. a little bit, like go low when they go there was, high. There, like what? there was no way to sort of. Like, I believe sort of, like, is what it is. Like, you can't, you just have to do it. And magically, I always managed to do it. The one that gave me trouble was you and me, but mostly me at the beginning because it's very high. It's yeah. higher than Starts I believe. Starts high and goes Starts high and goes higher. And that's yeah. my fault because I – Tell me if this is, like, a myth or true. But there's there's a little mythology about you that you decided to place that song so high that no one else who came after you – would ever be able to do it quite as magnificently. Tell me All about right. that. Well, when I... This is a little known fact. This is a little known fact. Share, for real. That when I was doing that workshop mm-hmm. and didn't have an offer for Broadway, but the show was going to Broadway, but I knew I had to offer for this workshop, and they had replaced every Elder Price. Like the rest of the cast had pretty much stayed intact, right. but every time they did a reading, they changed the Elder Price. So here we are, final workshop, and I was like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not losing this job. I don't want to lose this job. So Stephen Aremus, who's the musical director and the arranger and is a friend of mine, we started singing through things and I just kept suggesting maybe they all go up a little bit. And he was like, well, that, that, I don't know if that's a good idea, but okay. So we just kept sort of jacking up keys. And of course it's exciting and it sounds yeah, great. Amazing. And I wasn't thinking about eight shows. I was like, I just want to make sure that. I get to do this. When I get it goes to do to this Broadway. Yeah, yeah. So that's what happened. And luckily for me, like my voice sort of sits in a you know high place naturally, and um, so it wasn't a, a a struggle to do it. But um, yeah, I've had a lot of people sort of curse at me. Um, so a lot of other tenors who are like, "Why? Why did you do why that? Why would you do that to us? You're not a team player, Andrew. I wasn't being a team player." Have they had to change the key or lower it when other people have come in after you? I think so, yeah, which I think is, you know, that's good. I mean, because yeah. it's not about hitting those notes. It's about telling that story. And so if it needs to be a half step lower or something, like, then so make it. it lower. Yeah. All right. Well, I just am imagining right now there are kids in Nebraska and all over the world with the CD cover to Book of Mormon 
and you are now their entree into this world that's that may just change their life. And that's I know you have been that for my family. Thank you. And uh, I'm so grateful that you came in today. I cannot thank you enough. This is so much fun. Thank you so much. Here's my conversation with Tony nominee Ben Platt from the Tony-nominated musical Dear Evan Hansen. His stage career began when he was just a kid, playing roles in Carolina Change, Cinderella, The Music Man, Mame, Into the Woods, Pippin, and Guys and Dolls multiple times, once in Hebrew. On Broadway, he has starred in The Book of Mormon and Dear Evan Hansen, for which he has won multiple awards. On film, he is famous for playing Benji Applebaum in the mega box office hits Pitch Perfect and Pitch Perfect 2, Ricky and the Flash, and the soon-to-be-released Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and Drunk Parents, co-starring with Alec Baldwin and Selma Hayek. Welcome, Ben Platt, to the podcast. I'm so thrilled that you're here, my friend. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I think we just have to start off right away with a constant in my house, which is pitch perfect. Was that a hard part to get? You know, not particularly as far as the process. It was a very run-of-the-mill situation. I was in my summer before going away to college. That was the plan. I was going to go to Columbia University here in New York City. Oh, nice. And about a month before I was supposed to leave, I was at a voice lesson with my teacher at the time, Eric Vitro in L.A., and he said, are you going in for this college singing movie? All of my clients that are your age seem to be going in for this college singing movie. And I thought, well, that's interesting. No, I'm not. So I contacted hmm. my agents and I asked them about it and they said, yeah, the script came across our desk, but there's um, you've been sort of typed out essentially. It's not really a part that fits your your mold. And I was like, well, it's about college kids that sing so huh. I, like I think maybe I could find right. something so why don't you send me the script yeah. so they sent me the script and would it kill you <laughs> <laughs> really and then there was a character like named Benji and right. I was like interesting we share a name hmm. what about this guy to their credit I had never really played sort of the outcast nerd sort of like social pariah character um, that was kind of the beginning of that let me go and give this a shot so I went in for the casting directors, was called back for the casting directors and Jason Moore, the director, and then a third time in a sort of pseudo screen test for Elizabeth Banks and Jason and some of the Universal people. And then about like two weeks before I was supposed to go to Columbia, was offered the role and decided to defer instead and to take my packed duffel bags to Baton Rouge, Louisiana instead of New York City. Did you have to audition with any other actors or were you always by yourself? Always by myself, always just doing the scene where Benji meets the troublemakers at the activities fair. And so I had just had to do that scene a bunch of times, and then I had to sing a, a few different songs in each audition. I just wanted to hear us a cappella sing a few things. I sang Feeling Good by Michael Buble a few times. And then at my final audition, they said, why don't you sing it as if you've spent the whole movie trying to get into this group, and now finally this is your one chance, and you come on stage, and you're very nervous, so start very slowly, and then gain confidence as you go. And so I sang it sort of in the way that I sing Magic and Me in the, in the movie, and then that kind of clinched it. And then there you have it. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank God for all of us, because <laughs> it must be sort of a heady thing right out of the gate to be in something that is, for popular culture, just starting off with that. It's so huge. It that's... is crazy. I mean, I certainly had no idea this is what it was going to be. It was a small sort of... It was a studio film, but as about as small as a studio film can be, pretty low budget, not a lot of famous people. I knew Anna Kendrick from, like, 
up in the air. And right. Rebel Wilson was the really funny girl from Bridesmaids. And right. It was a lot of, it was just like theater camp in Louisiana for three months. And it was a blast. Heaven. and Truly heaven. heaven. And Skylar Aston is a fr- was already a friend of mine from some theater workshops and things. And Did so, you watch those high school musical movies when they came did out? Did I watch those high school musical <laughs> What do you take me for? <laughs> Sorry. Let me rephrase the question. As I am someone who's watched every one of them mm-hmm. and also the behind the scenes of the making of them. <laughs> Religiously. So for the making of Pitch Perfect, Mm -hmm. I would imagine it was similar in terms of how you learned all the numbers, right? Very much so. And for me, I think that's why it was the perfect first on-screen foray because I was really comfortable because it was – we had a rehearsal process and a rehearsal room with dancing and singing and it was something I was so familiar with because I grew up doing musical theater. So to me, it felt so natural. And then to make that transition to my first job on camera – to be in such a comfortable space and have half the things I was doing on camera be things that are on stage was like an excellent transition. And also to have Jason Moore directing, who's a wonderful theater director and could speak to me in a way that I really understood was You were like, Jason, it would be easier for me, (laughs) instead of saying like camera right or camera left, if you could say stage right (laughs) and stage left, I think you'd get a great performance out of me. Can we just have a small audience on hand (laughs) to offer reactions? Speaking of a small audience, you would just have to have your family in the room, right? So for those of you who don't know, Ben grew up one of five. I did. And his last name is Platt. And they were a family that loved musical theater so much that they would often be called by friends and family the Von Platt family. Yes, Correct? indeed. Yes, Correct. Enjoy- the Von Platt family singers, if you will. Oh, this night air is no good for the children's voices. The- <laughs> <laughs> this Malibu air is no good for the children's voices. We must get them. <laughs> it's too dry a climate in L.A. for the family to sing. <laughs> we must get them into the Alps. So... This family's love for mm-hmm. musical theater was born from where? My parents, especially my father, grew up loving theater and directing shows in his backyard the way that I grew up and just being obsessed with the original cast albums and, and with just the beauty of Broadway. And his biggest dream has always been to create Broadway musicals. And so... And he fulfilled his and dream. he did fulfill his dream. He created a really a small art show. It's called Wicked. Okay, so your dad is Mark Platt, mm-hmm. who's really helped form Broadway as we know it. Yes, for the indeed. Last From pretty early on, it was, well, first he was sort of an executive and a studio head, and it was always sort of a big picture kind of a guy. But to, the question yes. with musical theater, what was my 100%, question? It was, <laughs> I'm sorry, how what? did the love for musical theater start? So, yeah, yes. so he would play us in the car every day, and we would drive to lunch or something on the weekends. It wouldn't be the radio, it'd be the Gypsy Cast album, or his workshop of Wicked, or Tick, Tick, Boom, or. So, like, I just, like, grew up as that was my bread and butter. So right. I it was I just assumed. And they put me in theater when I was six years old. They put me in at the Adderley School for the Performing Arts in the Palisades, which is, like, a fun 12-week after-school program where kids put on some semblance of a musical. What I found to be so remarkable is how incredibly down-to-earth and grounded you are. Thank you. And that's true of all of your siblings that I've had the pleasure to meet. That's my parents doing. School me as a mother myself who (laughs) wants to raise really good kids You have wonderful children, and I strive to emulate your life. Could you say that just one more time? Alana (laughs) Levine has what? Has wonderful children, and I strive to emulate her life. Thank you. Truly. And we're done. That was so great. Thanks for coming on the show. This was amazing. Congratulations on Dear Evan Hansen. Thank you. Goodbye. It's a big um, <laughs> These are little known facts that, uh, um, you know. Um, Thank you. Yes, you're Thank welcome. Thank you. It has to be slightly pitchy to be authentic. <laughs> we could have done it not that way, but 
You got to give the people what they want. Platt. So back to me being down to earth. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. No, but, you know, on one hand, I'm not a great example because I, I did grow up in the business. And so I was around these sort of like glitzy people and yes. famous folks and grew up going to movie sets and premieres and things like that because just by virtue of who my father was. First Why aren't all, you in jail or on drugs right now? Because my family has a beautiful Jewish background. I think I think that's a big part of it. We were very grounded in our community and our synagogue means a lot to us. And I went to Jewish day school all through eighth grade and just growing up in a very sort of tight knit because L.A. is a very disparate place, too. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's, it's easy for kids to feel like they don't sort of have their home base, mm-hmm. whereas I almost think in New York it's a bit easier because it's a tighter place. And I don't know, it's, for some reason, maybe just because I didn't grow up here, but I always find it easier to, like, find your niche here. But anyways, because I lived in, a, in an area that was a lot of Jews who all went to the same synagogue and the same day school, I just grew up in a, a way that could be at both at once sheltered and also exposed to lots of great culture and art. And because right. my parents were in the business, I got to see all sorts of things that expanded my mind. And yet I did get to live in somewhat of a Jewish, safe a little community bottle. Yes, in a, the Pacific Palisades. <laughs> Where did you grow up? What, West, in like right Westwood. near UCLA. Everything was shut down from Friday night, sun, mm-hmm. sunset, until, sa- until Abdullah. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have any concern being identified as too Jewish in this business? Did that ever happen to you? You know, no. I think partially because a lot of people in this business happen to be Jewish, which mm-hmm. is a wonderful thing. I'm more so probably Shh. in... I know, I don't know. <laughs> Stop. What are you talking about? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think... You know, that's part of what makes me like a sane and grounded and happy human being is my Jewish background. So the characters, you know, you were saying that earlier on when the part of Benji Applebaum came your way, your agents didn't immediately think of you as someone who was an outsider. But since then, you have played these really complex characters who very much feel like an outsider. Was there a time in your life where you felt that way? The real answer is... I feel like part of me feels too guilty to say that I ever did feel that way because I had a wonderful upbringing and I am very fortunate to have been in a loving family and to have been supported in every way I could have possibly wanted to be supported. So in any sort of deeply existential way, no, I did not feel like an outsider. But growing up as a kid who's around a bunch of boys who love to play sports and you want to go home and do a show in the backyard makes you sort of look inward a bit. So I think, if anything, that's the only jumping off point I have is thinking like, I did like to spend a lot of time on my own in my own thoughts and in my own sort of creative world. Um, And so I think I can relate to that part of it. As far as the inability to be social and interact, which is a lot of the characters that I've played have had, that's not something I've ever dealt with or had trouble with. I love to interact with people and be social when I choose to be. But I can understand the desire to not do so, which is why I think I'm able to at least have a jumping off point that I can personally relate to, if not completely fabricate, but some parts I need to just sort of create. So what is your process? How do you work on a part? It definitely varies greatly depending on if it's a a stage piece or if it's on film. I think Evan Hansen is what I, my mind is the most occupied with at the moment and definitely the role that I've played that I've had the most time to develop Mm -hmm. because I uh, have been with the piece for about two and a half years since the very first table read. And so have somewhat collaborated with the writers to create this person from scratch. And so that's been different in a way that I've never experienced because it it was such an open book. And so I was able to take seeds of an idea and see what really did feel honest to me and what felt effective to me and then incorporate those things because they were organic to me as opposed to taking things like with Elder Cunningham, the Book of Mormon, 
looking at a script and a role that had already been created and thinking there are, you know, vital aspects of this that I must recreate that I have to right to right be because true the machine to. is in place like, exactly, right. and, and I don't want to compromise the piece, but at the same time, what can I do to infuse it with myself and make it honest to me and make it organic and make it believable because I'm not Josh Gatt. So right. I think it's really definitely varies. Wait, you're, I thought I was in your I'm really Josh sorry. Gatt. I'm so sorry to disappoint you. Second time we have to stop. I know. It's a nightmare. All right. Well, Ben <laughs> Platberg, let's keep going. Let's keep going and see if we Plat- can find something. <laughs> To use from you, <laughs> not being Josh Gad. Can you just talk a little bit about the theme of Dear Evan Hansen? What comes at you after the show, after you've given so much? Certainly. So Evan Hansen, in a nutshell, is about an isolated kid who has a lot of crippling social anxiety and a lot of trouble connecting in a world that is currently very hyper-connected as far as being online and being able to share your thoughts and judge each other's thoughts instantaneously, which I think just kind of pulls him further and further into himself. And I'm not going to give away any of the plot, but it's essentially just sort of a really raw and real depiction of a kid who does not know how to get outside of himself and connect to people and wants nothing more than to do so. And so... I think whether it's kids that come that are themselves dealing with social anxiety or are somewhere on the autism spectrum or in the other side of, of, of things, kids that are seemingly on the outside, very typical children who also just see themselves in him. I think it's just by virtue of the fact that the show so successfully depicts the current world mm-hmm. and the fact that the character that we've been able to all create together it feels like a, a person that everybody really knows or has met or can see themselves in. Right. People get very affected and I think that anxiety specifically hasn't really been depicted this way in a musical before. And I think that anxiety is something that's pretty rampant right now with kids. I know that I've certainly dealt with my share of anxiety. And so afterwards, as far as what you're saying about how I deal with the response, people feel a sort of ownership over the character and the experience that they've had and the emotional experience that they've had. And so when they meet me afterwards, they sort of expect some sort of button to that emotional journey or some some sort of commiseration. And I and I want nothing more than, than to provide that for people. But sometimes by virtue of the fact that I'm an actor and I'm a happy person and I can leave the theater and be myself and not be lost in that emotional place, right. it's sort of unsettling for people sometimes because they're like, wait, why aren't you, why aren't you on, on the floor? <laughs> right, because something really horrible just happened to all of us. And exactly. You're going to... The palm <laughs> or a lobster. Social media is a star of this play as well. Certainly. I mean, sort of its role in our society. And I really loved coming away with what are we winning? For your character, he actually won a moment of feeling without giving too much away. Certainly, certainly. What it's like to be inside something, mm-hmm. right? Have you ever told a big lie in your life? I can only think of two. Okay. The first is that I had people at my house after semi-formal, for, uh, which is a dance in my high school. I told my mom that we weren't going to drink, and we all, of course, drank. And I kept the secret for a really long time, and it did really well, and nobody knew, and I was very clean and polite about it and didn't make a mess, and nobody got sick and right. nobody got hurt. And then one day my mom found, like, a bottle cap left over, like, from a long time ago on the counter, and I was foiled, so I didn't really get to be the one to come clean there. And then the other thing is, this is even worse. This is, like, maybe the worst thing I've ever done. Okay. I was at camp, and I was... I say 11 or 12 and the new Harry Potter book came out while I was at camp 
And so everybody was getting their Harry Potters delivered to camp in the middle of the session. And <laughs> Telegram for Ben Platt, your Harry Potter's here. Yeah. And mine never came. And I was really upset because everyone was reading it and talking about it. And like I was learning about like things I didn't want to hear about yet without reading it myself. So I stole another camper's copy of the book and wrote my name in it. <laughs> Do you remember who that camper was? Another camper named Ben. And mm-hmm. I don't remember his last name, but Made his it name easier, was... Made it easier, though. Exactly, it yeah. did. And I got away with it. And this I got book to belongs to Ben. And I read it, and no one ever knew until maybe right now. So, yes, I have told lies. Never in and my... And lived with the consequences. No matter how sort of inconsequential that may be now, I still remember very well mm-hmm. what that felt like mm-hmm. and the guilt of that and... You know, I, I still feel Did rather guilty. Did you see guilty. that same Ben like every summer, or was that your last summer at that camp? So you never. Oh no, no, he was again? always there. Did you ever tell him? I did pr- not. Mm. Maybe I should. Maybe I'll reach out on Facebook. Yeah, just because he's still like he never read it. <laughs> <laughs> he still walks around like. What happened the, in the fifth Harry happened? Potter? And also, like Harry Potter's everywhere right now, so it's a constant like kind of sting uh-huh. for him. Like, don't mm. say Harry Potter. <laughs> and he doesn't even know why. He can't book remember. Just evaporated. That's really sad. <laughs> Moving on. But good for you Thank for you. Thanks for, for letting me giving me a platform it. to come clean. Totally. That's what we do here. So I just want to segue for a minute because sure. I recently watched just the trailer for Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. And was sobbing. But you worked with Ang Lee on that film. You've worked with Meryl Streep, <laughs> the great director Meryl Streep, <laughs> the great director Selma Hayek and Alec Baldwin. A co-directing. co-directing. <laughs> They're like the Coen brothers. Truly. They are, they are the Coen brothers. They're like the more attractive Coen brothers. But the Coen brothers are cute. What can you tell me about Mr. Lee? It was an f- incredible experience, unlike anything I've very much out of my element as far as previous experience. It was the first film I did that had absolutely nothing to do with music and nothing mm-hmm. to do with comedy, and it was just a really sort of real-life depiction. It wasn't necessarily a terribly dramatic role for me. I play sort of a plot device, rather, and I... Josh. I'm, I'm, you play Josh. I play Josh, and yeah. I'm a PR rep that's in charge of taking these, this troop of boys around for the day that they're spending at this football game on Thanksgiving in Dallas, who are my age, but have been through a whole other, you know, and I'm meanwhile, I'm in a suit in this cushy job in Dallas. But I mean, he's definitely an incredibly, incredibly visual artist and sees everything from such a far away place. And yet, if there is any questions that I have about character or things that feel very small and minuscule and, and sort of more along the human lines of things, his answers are incredibly succinct and incredibly effective mm-hmm. and just as tapped in with that as he is with what he's being more verbal about because that's his medium is, is right. the way that it looks. And it's we've got this new technology going in this film that I'm not going to be able to describe because I'm not smart enough. But right. it's this brand new sort of frames per minute thing where it's like sort of the most fine filmmaking, like in terms of literally fine, that you can see sort of every detail. We weren't allowed to wear any kind of makeup because it's like incredibly clear and high definition. It's also in 3D. Did you sneak makeup? Not at all. And I'm incredibly broken out on the first day of filming. And it all takes place in one day. Oh my God. So when you first meet me. So then they had to like paint zits on you. But wait. No, I just, my skin just gets progressively better throughout the day. (laughs) See, it's a metaphor. For healing. As he heals, so does does my skin. Proactive. I probably, the time that I felt the most part of something 
way huger than myself. I mean, Pitch Perfect obviously has become something quite large, but as far as feeling part of a much larger statement, artistic mm. statement, mm -hmm. I never felt that before, and that was really cool. Why do you think Pitch Perfect? Like, what is, about it caught fire? Do you can you explain? I think so. It? I mean, I think it's was the timing, and it's the generation that grew up on High School Musical and sort of are interested in bringing musicals in some way back into the mainstream and like enjoying music being a part of their mm -hmm. entertainment. But it has this sort of snarkiness and sharpness and edginess and and funny voice of Kay Cannon at the same time, which makes it sort of cool enough and sort of more universally enjoyable for people that maybe don't, maybe their way in is not the music. It includes a demographic that otherwise maybe wouldn't be Included in this sort of musicals like world, and so I think so. It's when that you went synergy. back for the second one, first of all, did everyone have a bigger trailer, and were there like <laughs> double the amount of carrot sticks available? Yes. Like <laughs> way more carrot sticks. There was like three microwaves, like per person, per person. But yes, no, definitely in all of the superficial, like sort of literal ways, much bigger film, right. bigger budget. Everyone's getting paid more. Everyone's got a little bit of a nicer setup. The film crew is larger. The the cameras are nicer. There's more makeup. There's more right. wardrobe. So definitely like a bigger deal. And also we all felt a bigger responsibility now because we wanted to deliver other than these characters that now everybody loves and wants to hear from. And yeah. the first time it was just this sort of fun thing we were creating yeah. and finding. And so now it's like, will people expect to love these people again? And so we want to deliver that for them. So that plus how much bigger the movie was kind of met in a nice way, which I think is dangerous for sequels because sometimes – that doesn't necessarily translate when you've got something sort no, of but it did. small and warm and then you try to create more from it. But I think they did a good job of keeping the essence of the first one alive and making it feel like the same sort of material and yet a much cleaner, prettier studio film. Speaking of musicals, you did Ricky and the Flash with Meryl Streep. Yes, indeed. Who I can't imagine you hadn't heard of before you <laughs> no, appeared on No, it's actually my first time. Um, <laughs> and you are. I Tell me your name <laughs> one more time. I recognize her from Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia. What is her on-set demeanor? I was very afraid to meet and work with her because she is our hero, our collective hero. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think there's anybody in the business or around the business or who's even dabbled in acting that doesn't consider her somewhat of a hero. Right. And you never want to meet your heroes because you're like, well, they're just going to be mean and ask for coffee or something. Right. I was worried about that today with you. Oh, but she, it's almost like now I know why she's a legend because she is every bit the human that she is the talent. She's kind and giving and generous and wants to impart wisdom and wants to bring the best out of people. And at the same time, you, everyone's on set with Meryl Streep, so they're like, I need to be doing my best work at right. all times. You don't come to work and see Meryl Streep and think like, I'm going to do okay today. Like, <laughs> I'm going to like try. You know, most of my lines. <laughs> but I think I was the most interested to try to watch anything I could and gather anything I could from her. And I was wondering, you know, is this a Daniel Day-Lewis situation where she's completely in character off camera and does she stay and does she make me call her Ricky all the right. time? Will she be and... in wardrobe? And it's somewhere beautifully in the middle where she can be completely herself and doesn't sort of pretend to be any like other person than herself when she's not on camera and yet will stay in whatever the sort of vibe of the day is or of the scene or the essence of her character and like keep sort of Ricky is this like sort of subdued cool rocker chick so she was always very sort of smooth and laid back and with her feet up and you know like just little things that kept her in the world and yet able to go in and out of being Marilyn, the character. And I think that that's something I'll try to take with me and that I won't forget is 
just how valuable that is. Because coming from theater, I love that you get to just do the whole story in a row and stay in this world and then go home and be you and then come back and do the same. And film is so sort of give and take and sort of stop and start and like you can be working on nine hours and you work for two of those hours. And so something so helpful is just kind of maintaining that vibe all day long. And so was... in a part like Evan Hansen, which demands so much of you physically sure. and emotionally, I, I mean, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, Ben really physically embodies this person who has so much angst and the electricity that runs through his body in order to kind of handle all the angst manifests itself in a lot of physical twitches and ticks. How do you come down? Are you someone who's able to turn it off when after the curtain call? Over time, it has become easier to transition out. I think at the beginning, when I was first starting to do the show eight times a week and living in this emotional place all the time, it took me a while to come back down as far as I wouldn't necessarily be in a dark, depressed place because the show does end on a somewhat uplifting note. But just emotionally spent and not really able to function as a person afterwards just because I wanted to go home and sit in bed by myself and just like right. kind of let it fall off of me. But as time has gone on and I've really learned what my show is and what my night is and how to pace myself and how to live the journey and then move forward, it's become easier and easier. And because I'm just so happy to be having this experience mm-hmm. and this is like every bit of my dream all coming true at the same time. I wanted to learn how to get back to me quickly because I want to be able to, enjoy for me, it. Ben, the human, enjoy what's going on and hear the love people are giving me afterwards and receive it and not let this whole experience pass me by because I do want to make sure I'm always working really hard and taking full advantage. And this obviously particular role requires a lot of me. It's not worth it if you can't enjoy the fruits of your labor and 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 take in the experience as me, the person. So I just have been trying to make a point of doing my work and and throwing myself in it, but then letting myself off the hook afterwards and being like, you just be you, you enjoy what just happened and you, yeah. you let take it all in. And Because I'm bad at that. I, I live very much in my head and I'm always sort of my biggest critic and I'm like, my voice was at an 85 today and I didn't, and you know, like my mother always says to me like, your 85 is at another person's 100, Benjamin. And I'm like, okay. Well, she's right. There are so many incredible songs in the show. There's a song called Waving Through a Window. Do you mind just singing a little bit of it so that I can cry in the studio. Sure. All right. just, I'll give you a little chorus. Okay. On the outside, always looking in, will I ever be more than I've always been? Because I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass. I'm waving through a window. Oh, I try to speak, but nobody can hear. So I wait around for an answer to appear while I'm watch, watch, watching people pass. I'm waving through a window. Oh, can anybody see? Is anybody waving back at me? I love you so much. Thank you for doing that. And <laughs> thank you pleasure. for being here, Ben Platt. Thanks you for are having me, Alana Levine. Magnificent. And as are you. See you soon. Love you. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com.
I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by ProMedia. Located in Times Square, ProMedia offers both production and post-production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. ProMedia Sound Vision. Find out more at ProMedia.nyc. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.